You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rumrunner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We're going to be talking about Nathaniel North today. It's been a while since we've talked much about North, and you may have noticed our coverage of his career has been fairly sparse. Nathaniel North is a troublesome pirate. There's some debate about whether or not he even existed. Now, I'm not going to take a stand on that, but... The chapter on Nathaniel North in A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, is a little bit off. The first thing you'll notice is that it's not really a chapter. It's an appendix at the very end of the book. So that means that it was written after the first edition had already been published, and it doesn't quite match up with the rest of the book. I mean, some of the facts just don't match up. At this point in the story of John Bowen, he's on board the Speaker, with Bowen and Thomas White, and that might be the case in reality. After Nathaniel North attacked Johanna back in 1701, there's kind of a lull in Nathaniel North's story. There's some things before 1701 that could be attributed to Nathaniel North, but nobody's really sure. After that, though, until about 1707, there's only one source, and that's a general history of the pirates, Volume 2. For five years, that's all there is. But it's that period, this questionable era, 
in Nathaniel North's life that I want to talk about today. This is episode 331, The Scandal of Human Nature. So all of this might be fictional. I mean, probably most of what we're going to talk about today is fiction. Most of this was probably written well after the fact, deep into the 1720s, even the 1730s maybe. And I mean, it reads like Rousseau. A lot like Rousseau, in fact. It reads so much like Rousseau that there's a part of me that wonders if a young Jean-Jacques wasn't sitting around one day reading a popular bestseller about the adventures of the pirates, read this chapter and thought, huh, that's not a bad idea. And if you're not familiar with the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but I mean, who isn't, I'll give a brief overview, you know, the best I can anyway. Rousseau was a proponent of what he called humanity's natural state, or the state of nature. Now, that's an idea that ties into the whole noble savage concept, a big thing for, here in 1700, a person like John Locke. In Rousseau's view, he's got this idea that mankind is inherently noble and good. He argued that it was only the imposition of society that turned men into violent, greedy, envious monsters. And, you know, none of that's unique to Rousseau. All of these ideas were well established by 1700, and he was writing mostly in the 1750s. He did have some unique conclusions that would go on to heavily influence the French Revolution, but I'm not concerned with those today. Instead, I'd like to focus on the ideas. Rousseau wrote, quote, The first man who, having fenced in a piece of land, said, This is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him, that man was the true founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, Beware of listening to this impostor. He's saying that it was the foundation of human society that's the real root cause of crime, war, murder, all the evils of humankind. Rousseau would have us believe that the main attributes to humanity before the evils of society were introduced were twofold. First, there was amour de soi, that means love of the self. And then there was pitié, or an instinct to preserve the species. Those two elements are what he considers the state of nature. The further away we get from the state of nature, the more vices we collect. Greed, exploitation, control, often through religion, power through politics, and all of that sounds fine to me, that makes sense, but Rousseau also tries to tie in a lot more of the uh, base sins. Rape, murder, theft, that kind of thing. He calls those societal evils as well, which, I mean, kinda, but it gets a little far-fetched for me. Now, at this point, I'm sure you're wondering why I'm bothering with all this talk about Rousseau. Well, it does tie back to Nathaniel North and the appendix of A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2. According to Captain Charles Johnson, whoever he or she may have been, 
Captain Nathaniel North led that raid on Johanna, and then, as they were escaping, the pirates spied a large Moorish vessel. In the night, without having been noticed, the pirates sneaked in close, put a boat into the water, and rowed over about a dozen men. The plan was to send those dozen men aboard, take out the guards, send a man back with the message, and then the sloop could sail in close and all of the pirates could board the ship at once. And if it worked, that would have been impressive. I mean, this was a large, powerful ship filled with plunder and lots of guns. It would have made Captain North quite the power in the Indian Ocean. But those dozen or so men who rowed over in the boat, they didn't stick to the plan. They took out the watch, as they were supposed to do, but before they sent the boat back, they decided to have a look around. Probably, they decided to peek their noses into the hold and see if there was anything worth hiding away. You know, maybe a particularly rich bag of jewels, something that would be easy to conceal and worth a lot of money. But when the men stuck their noses into the hold, they found valuable treasure. Not a bag of jewels or anything easy to conceal. They found a chest full of silver and gold. Something that was way too good to pass up and something that might be lost if they tried to take the ship. So instead of risking that, they loaded this chest of precious metal into their boat and rowed back to their sloop. And when they arrived with this rich chest full of silver and gold, I do have to imagine that the rest of the crew kind of said, oh, hey, I see y'all had a look around, didn't you? Just a little peek, huh? But when they show up with a chest like that, kind of hard to stay mad at them. So the pirates spent the night counting their plunder, and it worked out well for everyone. They all got a fat share. But the men began to get it into their heads that this ship was a treasure ship, that this one chest really only scratched the surface of what was definitely, I mean, without question, had to be the wealthiest ship on the seven seas. So the pirates planned that before dawn they would sail over close, and when dawn came, they would jump the rail and take the ship. But in the night, a fog rose. The ship had to sail carefully, otherwise they might just accidentally ram into their new prize. And when the sun finally did rise, and the fog was baked away, that large Moorish vessel was nowhere to be seen. According to Captain Johnson, quote, Some of them ran up to an eminence, probably something like a crow's nest, and from thence spied the ship as far as they could well see, with all sail set, which was cruel and convincing proof that their loss was irreparable. End quote. So, the pirates sailed on. They made for mainland Madagascar, down to the south. They set up shop on an abandoned stretch of coastline, a bit southeast of St. Augustine Bay. And there, they begin to build a bit of a settlement. And it's that that I really want to talk about today. This new-founded settlement, more than any other pirate haven on Madagascar, screams Libertalia. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. At this point, in 1702, John Bowen arrived in this newly founded pirate haven. He had a new ship. He was in command of a powerful frigate called the Speedy Return, and he was sailing in concert with a well-armed brigantine under Captain Thomas Howard. We're going to hold off talking about Captains Bowen and Howard until next time. They've had a pretty grand adventure ever since they left Zanzibar, and I would shift over and tell that story today, but then I would have wasted all that time talking about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Plus, they don't stick around here too long. They do a little buying and selling with the crew of Nathaniel North and maybe trade off some of their men, you know, guys who want to settle down for a while and others who want to go out on the hunt. But then John Bowen and Thomas Howard left. Nathaniel North's men, though, they set up shop for the long term. This is how Charles Johnson explains the long hiatus in Nathaniel North's career. He tells us that North was busy establishing a new pirate settlement, Libertalia, as he might have you call it. First things first, they picked a place that was far enough from any locals that it wouldn't offend any territorial claims. Nobody else claimed their patch of land, but they were kind of wedged between two different kingdoms. Now, either kingdom, or both, might have made trouble for the pirates, but North played kind of a subtle diplomatic game with them. He made it clear that he was happy to stay where he was, to mind his business, to cause no problems for anybody. But at the same time, this pirate settlement served as kind of a buffer state between the two kingdoms. Because these two kingdoms weren't friendly, They'd had many border disputes in the past. So, with Captain North where he was, if either kingdom caused him trouble, the pirates would ally with the other side, and then there would be a large force of Malagasy troops with a couple hundred pirate auxiliaries to add guns and strength to their number. This possibility kept both sides from bothering Nathaniel North or the pirates, and for the most part kept them from bothering each other. It wasn't complicated. We've seen this thing all throughout the history of the world. You know, that's Armenia, between Persia and Rome. But it was precarious. According to Captain Johnson, the locals were, quote, very much prejudiced against the white men, end quote. Which, you know, you can call that prejudice if you want, but these Malagasy had seen English pirates before. But Nathaniel North had a plan for that as well. He ordered his men to never let any of their disputes devolve into any kind of heated argument. 
he said that they were to bring any dispute that could not be talked out themselves before him, and there he would arbitrate everything. And apparently that's what he did. They had disputes over territory, food, supplies, not women, as we'll see, but apparently one of the biggest problems they had was arguments over booze. You know, there would be a bottle of rum and two men would get into a fight about who gets to finish it off. But Captain North managed to keep all of that in check. Johnson writes, quote, Nay, in this point of keeping up a harmony among themselves, they were so exact that whosoever spoke in an angry or peevish tone was rebuked by all the company, especially if before any of the country, he means the locals, for they thought, and very justly, that unity and concord were the only means to warrant their safety. End quote. It was a good first step, and it put a lot of arguments down before they began, because they had to. But then it was time to agree upon a code. The crew assembled, debated the merits of certain strictures, and then they voted on them. When a majority of men agreed on the contents of their charter, they signed it. And they all agreed that any man who had been found to break any of their laws would be held in contempt and judged by a jury of his peers. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were a young, literate, well-educated philosopher living in, I don't know, Paris or Philadelphia, circa 1760 or so, and I had a copy of this best-selling English pirate adventure in my hands, I might just read a passage like that and think, you know, that sounds pretty nice. Maybe we could implement something like that here. But really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The author, whoever it may actually have been, really got the bit in their teeth at this point. Now, I've got a fairly substantial passage to read for you here, and this all reads like a work of philosophy. After describing the basics of how their society was to be formed, the author goes on to talk about this state of unity, of unanimity, of peaceful cohabitation, and describes that as man's natural state of being. Quote, Nature, we see, teaches the most illiterate the necessary prudence for their preservation, and fear works changes which religion has lost the power of doing, since it has been looked upon as a trade and debased by the scandalous lives of those who think it their business to teach it only, and, satisfied with the theory, leave the practical part to the laity. End quote. And you see what they did there? That's pure enlightenment. They're arguing that our natural selves understand these truths as necessary for our survival, and in this particular instance, really necessary for their survival, or their neighbors will kill them. But then it tells us that religion has lost the ability to teach these truths because it's become a business, and imparting moral lessons has fallen to the layperson. And that right there, that's Rousseau, Voltaire, Thomas Jefferson, Danton, Maximilian Robespierre. That's pure Age of Revolutions Enlightenment stuff. The passage continues, quote, For these men whom we term, and not without reason, the scandal of human nature, who were abandoned to all vice and lived by rapine, when they judged it for their interest, not only were strictly just, but grew content and sober. 
It's true they were all polygamists, but that was no scandal among a people who thought the cohabitating with a pregnant woman a sin against nature, in acting contrary to her design, which is by generation to propagate the animal race, and who should be guilty of this crime among them, they esteemed worse than beasts, which, following nature, obey her orders exactly, and set men a lesson of prudence. End quote. Now, I had to puzzle over this one for a while, but if I'm reading it correctly, they're talking about free love. They're saying that it's nature's dictate that women propagate the species, which, okay, sure, but to that end, they're saying that notions of things like marriage and sexual ownership are sins against nature. They're saying that there's a lot of propagating going on, but that nobody's forcing these women to live as wives, that they're, you know, free, so long as they're doing their duty toward nature. And that goes way beyond even the most radical thinkers of the Enlightenment. You know, there were women in the 1700s who had ideas of things like co-equal marriage rights, or even a few real radicals who thought about equal rights in the law, but free love, abolition of marriage stuff, that's still pretty radical today, and didn't really enter the popular discourse until, like, the early 20th century with thinkers like Emma Goldman. And even Goldman, a prominent anarchist, got a lot of flack from her comrades for making those arguments. So it might be pertinent here to mention that there is a segment of historians that believe either this whole book, or at least passages within it, were written by women, probably extremely politically radical women. But that isn't quite as radical as it might seem on the surface. The author isn't arguing that good Christian English women live a life of free love to propagate the species, at least not yet. Instead, they're arguing that that's right for Malagasy women. You know, closer to the state of nature as they are. Which is, I'm sure, a notion that the pirates would have vehemently agreed with, so long as they got their free love. The passage concludes, quote, The reader may, perhaps, be well enough pleased to hear how on the smallest difference they proceeded to a reconciliation, for, as I have said, it was a maxim with them that the least discord among a few particulars would be the ruin of the whole body, as from a small neglected spark a general conflagration may arise and lay the noblest city waste. End quote. So they lived in peace and equanimity. They relied on rational reconciliation to settle their differences, and if they failed to do so, Libertalia, what they call the noblest city, might be destroyed. Then the author goes on to describe the legal process in Libertalia, and this is a very long, very detailed description of what proved to be a very progressive system. I am forced to wonder, though, how the author knew all of these details about the justice system in Libertalia. I mean, their description is immaculate, like they were there. It gives us the physical layout of the court, the numbers of men that were in certain roles, the judges and juries, the representatives, you know, lawyers, and even gives us the reasons that the uh, pirates had for doing all of these things the way they did them. 
and it would be familiar to all of us in the modern world because the pirates did things in such a way that, and I'm sure this is just a coincidence here, but they really seemed to mimic the legal proceedings that were held in places like ancient Athens and looked a lot like what would happen in modern-day America. You know, these really were some amazingly well-educated pirates to know about ancient Greece, right? It almost reads like the author is laying down their position for a just, decent, fair legal system. Like the author is making a proposition for a place like England that would fix a lot of the problems they had there, and merely pawning that off as a description of what the pirates actually did, but who am I to say? At that point, though, the book gets pretty gross. See, the pirates needed labor and women for their settlement at Libertalia. And that means they desired slaves and captives. And here it all gets pretty openly white supremacist. Captain North, or maybe we should call him Prince President North, well, one of their Malagasy neighbors declared war on one of their enemies, one of their other enemies, not the people that they were squished between. And North offered the services of the pirates to that leader. He offered to join the war in return for captives. The king accepted this offer, and the pirates marched off with the Malagasy. The guns that the pirates had made the battle that followed pretty much negligible. You know, they won very quickly. But once they all got back home, the king offered only the weakest of the captive men to the pirates as slaves. He kept all of the strongest men and every single woman for himself. He claimed that they were all family. And he did so very arrogantly in a way that the pirates found haughty and dismissive. So the pirates elected to march on their allies' keep and meet them in open battle, but when battle was joined, the pirates fired over their heads. They hit no one, but they showed the enemy the ease with which they could have killed everyone. With this, the Malagasy surrendered. The king and his sons crawled on their bellies to supplicate before Nathaniel North. They showed him their deference. But here it all starts to get pretty Rudyard Kipling. The Malagasy declaimed the natural superiority of the white man, of their decency, kindness, and generosity, their wealth of spirit. And then the Malagasy offered Nathaniel North a deal. They would split the enslaved men with the pirates. Fifty-fifty, best and worst, all together. But not the women. He would keep the women they had taken from the enemy, but their ally, the king, would send an equal number of women from his own kingdom. So Nathaniel North and the rest of his pirates marched back to their little slice of heaven. They had women with them, about five hundred head of cattle and maybe two hundred enslaved men. On the way, though, they were met by their other neighbor, the guy from the other side. When he saw that the pirates had marched off to join his mortal enemy, the other Malagasy king, he mobilized his own armies, just in case. But he saw that the pirates were coming back home with captives, cattle, women. So, this other king declaimed the prowess of the English, their 
raw animal virility, he saw that these dashing, powerful, magnanimous, well-endowed white warriors would be excellent allies. This isn't a direct quote from the book, but it's the spirit of what was written down. Hyperbole aside, though, there were a bunch of heavily armed men in his vicinity who had just showed their willingness to do battle. Probably a smart move to ally yourself with them if possible, and that's what this king did. The process through which they made the alliance formal is pretty interesting, and some of this can be verified by Woods Rogers, who would write a book on Madagascar just a few years later. The two kings, or in this case the captain and the king, sat down on the ground across from each other, facing one another. They intertwined their fingers on both hands, and then they intertwined their toes. Thus bound, they swore friendship and allegiance to one another, and then each provided curses should those promises be broken. They said that should the other man break his promise, he would fall upon his lance or be eaten by an alligator, that kind of thing. Finally, with their fingers and toes still bound together, each man chose a second, a representative, who then cut into his bare chest. The representative dabbed the wound with bread, and then fed the blood-soaked bread to the other man, the recipient of their alliance. And their alliance was formed, formally. And now Nathaniel North had the alliance of both of his two neighbors. He had a community of pirates who followed him, of women who were engaged in propagation, and plenty of enslaved men to do all the work. They raised cattle, they fished, they picked fresh fruit from nearby trees, they cultivated potatoes and yams. By all accounts, what they had created was paradise. I don't know that this settlement would be considered Libertalia. You know, Libertalia doesn't exist, it's a myth. But there were pirate settlements in the southwest of Madagascar, St. Augustine Bay, and here, pretty close together, though not connected. I don't know that I believe everything that the text has told us about the righteous and just nature of the system set up by the pirates here, but it does make sense that they would have agreed to a code, you know, a charter of codes and even laws that they had to follow or face punishment, maybe exile or execution. I do believe the bit about how the women were treated. When you look at groups of castaways, or men who set up shop on faraway lands, often they fall apart over arguments concerning the women in their group. Look at the sailors of the bounty. Everything they had fell apart because of arguments over the women. All throughout the Age of Discovery, you'll happen upon these places where there's, you know, 15, 20 women, a couple of hundred kids, and no men around. And when people show up and say, hey, where are all the men? The answer is always the same. They all killed each other because they were arguing over access to us. But that didn't happen here. It's entirely possible this was simply because there were plenty of women. You know, there were tons of women living in the Malagasy settlements nearby, and the DNA evidence in this section of Madagascar does have a pretty high percentage of European DNA. But this settlement would last in various forms for 
a couple of decades more at least. Nathaniel North ran it himself, if he actually existed, for the first five years. But then, in 1707, John Halsey arrived. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilliant. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.